Hello, Acquired LP Show listeners. This episode was so fun to sit down with my literally my kindergarten friend, Nat Manning, talk about his company, Kettle, and our friendship and his and my partnership together in Kindergarten Ventures, the fund that we run on AngelList together. So uh, great, great conversation. Nat and I were actually in person together at my house here in San Francisco. He was visiting uh, and Ben was over Zoom. It was so fun. Well, listeners, this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a new sponsor here on ACQ2, Quarter. Their new product, Quarter Pro, launched about a year ago and is already adopted by several Fortune 500 companies and some of the world's largest hedge funds and equity research departments. Yeah, this research platform is transforming the way qualitative public market research is conducted. Here's how Quarter Pro works. You can get every piece of first-party information from public companies all in one single place. That's live earnings calls with real-time transcripts, company filings, slide decks, and more. Quarter Pro has built a world-class user interface for this. Yep. Let's say you're an investor or a podcaster, and you've got the use case where you need to look up a company such as Novo Nordisk, Hermes, or Visa. You can open their platform and search Guidance or Market Outlook. Quarter Pro then immediately identifies all instances where a company has historically mentioned and discussed these topics in all of their IR-related communications. Or here's another pretty crazy thing they've done that's difficult to get anywhere else. You can actually search through literally every individual slide in Quarter's database, covering 9,000 public companies and millions of slides for any keyword mention based on Quarter's AI capabilities. This truly makes it easier than ever to conduct qualitative analysis of entire industry value chains and specific companies. So whether you're an equity research analyst, an asset manager, or an investor relations professional, this platform will help you increase your productivity through their live call, transcript components, AI-powered summaries, and a feature allowing you to visualize the entire timeline and changes of specific slides throughout Quarter's. Quarter also offers their database as an API solution. This enables other companies such as trading and research platforms, as well as AI and LLM companies to build custom solutions and integrate this database into their offerings or add functionality on top of the data. Yep. To find out why leading companies globally are choosing Quarter Pro in their day-to-day work and to experience the platform firsthand, request a personal demo by visiting quarter.com slash acquired. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R no e q u a r t r dot com slash acquired or click the link in the show notes to get the personal demo from the quarter team our thanks to quarter and with that on to our conversation with nat manning hello acquired lps nat manning is with us today hello nat thanks for having me guys this is my secret to success. I just have better than me, better halves in <laughs> literally everything in my life. This is certainly true in your marriage. Uh, that is, everybody <laughs> can agree on that. Indeed. Everybody can agree on that. <laughs> Later in the episode, we're going to talk a lot more about our history, kindergarten ventures. I think I've said on the show, it's called Kindergarten, our fund that we do together on AngelList, Nat and me, because we went to kindergarten Indeed. together. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> uh first like the actual reason you're on the show is because you are co-founder of kettle which we have also talked about a lot on acquired it's insurance it's fintech you know it's a start climate it's a climate it's all of like the intersection of all the interesting things happening right now so we thought now would be a great time to give listeners a primer from you what is kettle 
Uh, thanks for having me, guys. It's a blast to be here. So what is Kettle? Kettle is a reinsurance company that uses the most advanced technology, particularly using machine learning AI, to better understand the risks that are being exacerbated by climate change. So for instance, you know, one of the first things we look at is fire in California or, you know, in time, things like hurricanes and or wind and flood and convective storms. And all these things are being exacerbated. There's been a 3x increase in billion dollar catastrophes in the US in the last 10 years. And reinsurance is the business of understanding that risk, underwriting it. And really, I think about it as kind of like the, the second parachute, the safety net below the safety net. Oh, I mean, this is so cool. Like we, we spent what, like nine hours on the Berkshire episode talking mm-hmm. about all this, like Kettle is a reinsurance company. Nobody starts reinsurance companies. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, let there... me ask that, that question first. Uh, Nat, why did you start a reinsurance company instead of an insurance company? And how does that mechanically work? I would say there's two reasons why we started a reinsurance company. One is that the reinsurance industry, it suffers from kind of the classic innovators dilemma kind of stuff. You know, I think there's a lot more activity and new startups and things in the insurance company, but the reinsurance company really hasn't seen an update, you know, for for 50 years. And so I think there was just a large opportunity there. And it's this kind of wild, strange industry that's like in Bermuda and kind of Lloyd's of London and, you know, and like the Bermuda folks built a moat around their industry that's like the size of the Atlantic Ocean to keep people out. And it could use some updates. We can get into kind of why. And just as like a, a fun aside, Kettle is, you know, mostly a remote company, but your one office that you have is in Bermuda. That's true. We have an office in Bermuda. It's a half a trillion dollar a year industry in premium, in revenue. And about half of that is written out of Bermuda. And I give a lot of credit to the the regulator entity there. The reason why is because they said, we're going to really understand this and we're going to do good, really clear regulatory process. It's not the sort of like, hey, tax haven kind of hiding stuff. They obviously have good tax structures, but it's that they've never had a default. You know, actually, when you're buying insurance, you don't really want to buy in the States because you know, there's been, we've had Lehman Brothers in the United States. So people buy in Bermuda because they've, they've never had a default and you, you got to make sure your reinsurance pays. That's the last resort. The only thing after that is sort of Congress printing more money. Um, so. <laughs> and just a refresher for people who don't, maybe don't remember from the Berkshire series or others, you know, reinsurance is literally the business of insuring insurers. And so like, you don't want your insurer to default, right. but for the system's sake, you really don't want your your insurer's insurer to default. That's exactly right. And, and actually, to your, yeah, Ben, your question, the reason why we started reinsurer was, one, it felt like we had some unique knowledge and understanding about the industry. You know, my partners come from that space, and it felt like it really needed some, some disruption, some help. But the second is that it's insurance for insurance companies, which also means that it's really insurance for catastrophic level risks, right? It's you as an individual, let's just take property, you buy home insurance and you cover anything that's like under maybe five or 10 grand, right? You're like, hey, this thing broke. I'm not going to file a claim for that. But you get robbed, your roof leaks, something like that. You file you file an insurance claim and your insurance company covers any of those things that could go wrong. And then what they're thinking about is at the portfolio level, you know, they're, they're set up to cover the roof leaks and the burglaries and all that kind of stuff. But when a fire wipes out $100 million worth of damage in one in one go, they file a claim. They want to cover that 
tail risk. Right. Or and a hurricane or like this is why Katrina was such a problem it, for the industry, right? Exactly. And actually I can get kind of into that too as a sidebar. But to finish the thought, like the thing is, you know, and as we get kind of more into my story, I have been on this kind of path of around trying to protect people from from climate change for kind of my entire career. And I had this realization at one point that like reinsurance was really the industry that was doing this in this amazing way. And so I got totally obsessed. That's because reinsurance is really the industry of understanding those catastrophic level risks that are being exacerbated by climate change, the giant fires, not just is that roof going to leak or not, but where are these giant fires going to happen? Where is there real damage from another thing like a Katrina or a Sandy or um, well, this, is, this is what I think is so cool about both your story and and Kettle. I think, I mean, to a sort of like a quasi outsider, you know, being you know, friends and partners with you in kindergarten, I maybe know a little more. But the reason I think maybe a lot of people haven't innovated in the reinsurance space is that the competitive vector forever has just been cost of capital, right? Like that's why Berkshire is such a large player. So it's like, literally, are you going to go compete in cost of capital? Everybody's using the same models. Everybody knows how this industry works. But the potential other vector of competition is if you believe the existing models aren't going to work anymore, if something has changed in the environment. And like, literally, this is like, this is the opportunity. That's exactly right. Well teed up. So there's two things unpacked there, which is that, you know, as we dine and dove into the industry, and we're trying to figure out how we can make a, a difference. The first is that, so as I mentioned, there's been a 3x increase in billion dollar catastrophe, but then also, you know, the reinsurance industry has seen a, about a 62% drop in return on equity over the last 10 years. And Reinsurance has historically been a great asset class for uncorrelated risk in, in portfolios. So, but it's not a good thing if you're get, seeing a 62% drop in return on equity. And it's directly correlated to this 3x increase in, in catastrophes, right? It's just, just correlated to the claims going out. As we looked at that, it was just like, oh, what does that really tell us? Well, what it tells us is that the models aren't working anymore. Because if they were, you'd see a 3x increase in disasters but you wouldn't see a drop in return equity because you would have been predicting it. Right. And like so the, like the core competency, if I understand it right, of a reinsurer is to price risk. That's exactly. like that is 100% of the operations of a reinsurer. That's exactly right. That's the job is really price, understand risk, you know, and then maybe secondarily, it's a little bit to transfer it, right? To, you know, very much like a venture fund having LPs, right? Like who wants that risk? But the main the main thing is is understanding it. That's kind of the, the landscape that we're looking at is it's it's actually right there in the words, the climate changed, um, <laughs> right? Like it's not, that, that's what's happened. I feel like you've said that before. Yeah, yeah, Wednesday. <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> got that one in my back pocket. So we looked at that and we kind of started to unpack you know, it's interesting. I think about, you know, your guys' stuff all the time. The other thing that happened, and, and I think one of the causes of this, is that 25 years ago or so, the reinsurers started to outsource a lot of their modeling capabilities to a couple of firms. That made sense, you know, at the time, you know, okay, we these actuaries are expensive, like, let's, let's outsource more of the work, they're technically capable, we can save some money, increase our bottom line. But as I always think about you guys saying, you know, that outsource everything that doesn't make your beer taste better the understanding of the risk like that's the beer that's like a, that's, that's all the of the don't outsource that part it's not the hops that's not the malt that's no. not like that's the everything that's the beer yeah were they thinking that their core competency was capital raising and and just having a low cost of capital and that there was commodity underwriting and risk assessment that they could just have other people do i think so i mean that's my read of it i think a lot of people would argue differently but i think what happened was sort of 
a lot of these big balance sheets sort of took themselves from being technology creators to understand the risk to being asset allocators. You know, it was kind of like the financialization of the industry versus the technical understanding of the industry. And I think like something very similar happened to kind of, you know, the US auto market, right? Kind of was like, hey, you know, we're the classic kind of horizontalization of the industry that ultimately, like in the process of trying to drive prices lower and comp, you know, you end up actually losing your your competitive advantage. And so what happens today is every single reinsurer uses the same model for fire. Every single one. Whoa. And it was last really updated in like 2019, significantly updated. So that's not good for the industry. What kind of happens is, and I get into it, but what's happened over the last four or five years in California is we saw a ton of losses in 2017 and 18. And when that happens, the capital leaves. They go, hey, the model's not working. I'm losing. So the supply disappears. When the supply disappears, the demand's fixed. The insurers need to buy a certain amount of cover or they have to drop policies. And you only want to drop enough policies because that's your customers. You're not trying to drive your churn up, right? Um, but it's not like, going to be good headlines for State Farm or Allstate if they're <laughs> like, oh, we can't insure residential properties in California. Anymore. Yeah, this is significant. I think like social importance because you know what where does this end if you don't fix this problem is the reinsurers increase the rate like we drop more policies people can't get home insurance you can't get a mortgage you see a real estate crash that didn't work out well last time that's such a good point it's not even just that like you can't get a an insurance policy for your home it's you can't buy a home because you can't get a mortgage because you can't get insurance yeah there is the fair plan in california which is the government sponsored kind of catastrophic level plan, but it's tough. I mean, it's it's like getting, you know, the ACA when you already have, you know, a terminal disease or something. It's not a good plan. Um, it's not where you want to end up. Like and and you know what? Some places that's probably is the right structure, like government sponsored, because like it's highly dangerous and it's very difficult to insure. But as they say in the industry, there's a price for everything. Like you can my partner Andrew has been in this industry for a long day, he likes to say you can get insurance for TNT factories on fault lines. It's just you can, <laughs> depends on how much you pay for it. <laughs> well, let's go back to, you know, to 2019 when the model for the whole industry was updated for fire risk. What does that model like look like? Because my understanding is the models you are building are quite different than the old school way of doing things. Yeah, exactly. So the way that all modeling for for cat risk is done currently and and again like the incentives all make sense but it's done using actuarial modeling which is the the creation and in, in, in the main driver of, of insurance modeling insurance is really the the creator of data science and by creating actuarial tables it started back in the 15th century in scotland trying to predict the life expectancy of the clergy to give a a payout to Scottish widows, basically, like clergy widows. And that was the beginning of, of this process uh, and which really created data science. And then over time, you know, it insured trips, you know, the, the Lloyd's of London was created to insure expeditions out. Yeah, and, I was thinking like the Dutch East India Company yeah. and all that, like, yeah. Which is one of the ways actually Bermuda kind of became one of the the spots of all this was because it's the spot right in between Europe and America when Europe was colonizing the the Americas and you stop and you you because Bermuda is way up north from Caribbean what do you do you diversify your risk so you stop and you take your cargo and you share it amongst all the different ships so that if one of the ships goes down your financer doesn't lose their entire 
take. That's why this is in Bermuda. That's one of the reasons. Yeah, there's some smart policy decisions too, but that's that's the lore I've heard um, wow. for one of the one that's of the reasons crazy. in Bermuda. That's super cool. And for West Coasters, you hear Bermuda, and I think you sort of assume like Caribbean. It's like off the coast of South Carolina. Like it's ridiculously far north. That's right. Yeah, we should do like. Um, the Dutch East India Company or something. Have to at some point. We have to. Yeah. Oh, that would be a very so good one. Fun. That'd be a good one. So you know fun. the carried interest thing, right, David? Yes, that it came from that, right? Yeah. If you were sort of a, a new venturer who would go across and discover riches in the new world that you were entitled to keep twenty percent of what you carried back to your financiers. <laughs> I love that. Oh, so great. So great. Okay, so that Actually, right. so, science is highly sophisticated, but it's the legacy of that. Right? That's right. And so what actuarial modeling is, is let's look at, it's it's the law of large numbers. And it works really well for life expectancy and car crashes. And it's basically, let's look at the historical events and those will predict future events. Like I said, it works really well for car and auto and, and, and other predictable things. But as we said earlier, the climate has changed. And so... For years, that did work decently well for fire. In fact, where something has burned uh, is the single best indicator for where things will burn in the future. And so the way you know to simplify it, although it's not that much more complicated than this, it's like if there have been two fires in the zip code in the last 100 years, we're going to give it a 1 in 50 chance of burning next year. And we'll run 10,000 simulations across the state, and like that's how we price it might be a little more complicated than that, but that's that's essentially the brunt of it. And the thing is, before the effects of the anthropomorphic effects and the climate change effects that have taken effect over the last 10, 15 years, that did work decently well. It was kind of an 80-20 rule, like this just does a pretty good job predicting. But that, that indicator, historical fires, it's still extremely an important one, but its ability to predict future fires has eroded year over year tremendously. And so what we do is we use machine learning on all of the satellite imagery and weather data and real estate data that has been generated uh, in the last 30 to 100 years. And we use 64 different indicators. So things like wind and vegetation moisture index and what the house is built on, all this kind of different stuff. And we then run today roughly half a trillion simulations for every turn of our model. Wow. So you actually, not that it's possible to know this with an incredible amount of precision, but you might know better than anyone else where there will be fires this year. <laughs> like you could use I that don't for things promise other anything, than insurance, <laughs> but like n- notifying me. <laughs> but my, but yes, my entire you know business and livelihood is 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 built on that. You, you on can that confidently assumption. <laughs> say that you have the most thought out predictions and models of where so the fires thing, will be. Right? The thing to know is it's all probability. So I don't have a god model that can say this part's going to burn. But what we do is we run our models and we rate every parcel all 12 million parcels across california parcel um, being a parcel a yeah we actually originally did it by square kilometer but we've just launched a more even more highly defined version at the parcel level and, and we the rate, old school way is by zip code right yeah even more Ooh. um at the reinsurance level actually wow i mean get it in the reinsurance level they basically get rid of geography and and start using dollars as a structure and this is product design but it's just it drives me crazy. Uh, this is a sidebar, but 
essentially the way you write insurance is a, it's a geographically based risk, right? And so it makes sense. The way most reinsurance today is written because it's kind of, I guess, the easiest way to buy it is like, I'm going to buy an all peril, all state cover. So I anything that goes wrong in my portfolio, and I'm going to start it at $100 million, and we'll go to $500 million. And someone else will take $500 million to a billion. And you kind of build this this tower that way. The problem with that is like, it's a geographically based risk. Like it's so <laughs> right. that, and how is insurance sold? It's sold by by agents. So you have some hotshot agent in Paradise, California, who there's a new development goes up and they sell two hundred all state all farm policies, you know, in one neighborhood, all million dollar houses. One fire knocking down two streets could wipe out your entire first two hundred million part of that tower and you're paying out. And that's so foolish like it's here's the wild thing to know it seems it has gotten worse it is tough but there are 14 million structures in california the worst year in history in 2017 about 20,000 burned down the next year was 18 2020 was the third worst year in history 11,000 and then everything after that was under five that's less than 0.1 percent every year right like it's just where's the concentration of the risk what's the actual dollar damage and if you understand where those the highly likelihood of where those are going to be the vast majority of homes don't burn down to paraphrase and put it very simply your risk of losing the principal is highly geographically correlated 100 percent, yeah and so what we do as i kind of get back we broke everything down to parcels we we evaluate that risk and i can get into how how the models work and then we basically line them up from lowest risk parcel to to highest risk parcel. And then our underwriting guidelines are we just try our best to not write the 25% riskiest areas according to our our model. Over the last few years, about 95% of every parcel that has burned has been in the top 25% riskiest parts according to our model. So we're only really getting exposed to about like 5% of every burned parcel across the state. And for any of us who, you know, I was going to say California, but really in the whole West Coast of the United States have lived through this in the past several, like, yeah, this is just obvious, right? Like take Sonoma, right? Like Sonoma County, huge fire risk, like so much destruction over the past few years. But like anybody, like if we were to go buy a vacation house in Sonoma, we would totally go buy it on the Russian River because like you're fine on the Russian River, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. like that's not going to burn. You get to Guerneville and and farther west and like you're good. Yeah, go to Jenner. Like, yeah. So like (laughs) you guys can be like, great, we'll insure those houses. Whereas other people might be like, I'm not insuring anything in Sonoma. That's right. And that's what we've seen. You know, this folks are getting dropped all over the the state. And what's happened is there's been this kind of 5x increase in the price of reinsurance in California across the board. And just saying, hey, we're not going to write anywhere that's not, you know, downtown San Francisco and LA. And, and the reality is it is definitely more dangerous than it used to be. But it's not that much more. And actually, interestingly, in, in reinsurance, this is what happens in any market, really. You mean it's definitely more dangerous to live somewhere in California, but it's not in aggregate 5x in every single spot. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. And you can see that. There are bigger, like you said, like you live here, right? Like there are bigger fires. There are it's scary stuff. There's more damage, but it doesn't mean that everybody should get dropped and everyone should have their their rates you know five to ten x 
you know, some people should, and some people live in really dangerous spots and, and that's, that's tough. And hopefully government can support them in that. And some folks, it actually is, you know, like, Hey, this is, this is, and they, you can see this in a lot of business in reinsurance. It's called the class up. So interestingly, like a bunch of, I think it was Andrew hit uh, in 92, 93, Hurricane, back Andrew. Hurricane Andrew hit Florida, really huge damage. And a bunch of reinsurers were created on the back of that. Cause what happens is you have a hardened market. You see a bunch of people leave the supply disappears. And then there's an opportunity for someone to come and say, I think I have a better idea and way to do this post Katrina post nine 11. These were when the, the largest new reinsurers were created in the last you know 20 years. When we decide to work on fire, one of the things we look at, right, is first, if you think of a kind of classic McKinsey two by two or an X, Y axis, like on the X, it's, you know, on the far right is the, whether or not machine learning or technology will make a significant difference or not. Let's graph that. So on the far right, fires actually, there are 10,000 fires a year in California, and usually about 10 of them cause 99.8% of the damage. It's actually a really good data set to work off of, right? Versus earthquake which is more stochastic, a little harder to predict and measure, right? And so that might be further on the other side. And then on the y-axis is price dislocation. I think I could make a better flood model than anybody else out there right now that our team could. But because of the National Flood Insurance Program, we might say, hey, you're, you're dramatically undercharging for this. Like, you're charging $5 for $100 a cover. You should be charging 7 and guess what? No one's going to buy from right. us. Because like, there's a government backstop. So what's ha- exactly, well, and, and it's not even the government backstop. It's just like, that's the market price at the moment. And, you know, it's insurance. You buy the cheapest one, all things held equally. It is a commodity in that structure. And so... Oh, interesting. Right? So you only are incentivized to go after opportunities where it's mispriced in one direction, exactly. but not the other. Exactly. Exactly. And mm. so... And especially in reinsurance, like this is not a consumer product. Like no. your brand, Kettle's brand, you know, like it matters for recruiting and fundraising, but like... Totally. Whether consumers know kettle is maybe insuring your house in california you have no idea like (laughs) yeah i mean like fire coverage and reinsurance in california is maybe it's hard to measure exactly because i said a lot of this is kind of most most insurance is bought as an all peril like all aggregated together but maybe but it's all being driven by fire right now like that in particularly in california and like but it may be a 15 20 billion dollar a year business and it's like there's probably a hundred chief risk officers that make that entire all those decisions it is a very enterprise business right because like i'm how many how many primary insurers really are there and then you know there's a handful of others and like you can get into casualty and things like this but we'll get into the whole backstory i think we'll be where we talk about our history but kettle launched in 2020 that's right right? yeah Yeah, that's when you raised your seed round yeah we technically like i worked in on a whole bunch of different ideas and played around forever and eventually you know my my better half to said you know stop talking to me about insurance all the time and quit your job and go start a company already i met my co-founders in 2019 we we really jammed and we did kind of the classic thing we you know we applied to yc had a good idea did all sorts of fun stuff uh, i didn't know you applied to yc we got into the interviews and then didn't get it uh, it was not for this idea it was actually for an evacuation insurance product it was uh if you are in a mandatory evacuation zone you we will put three thousand bucks in your wallet in under an hour for 20 bucks an hour problem is is distribution so like the only people that buy it are people who get evacuated all the time so you have to you have to figure out a way to distribute it evenly across the population and that that you know that's that stuff you can't do like a direct-to-consumer product in any point we also kind of came back from that so we heard we like got the no oh man but we really loved working together this was so good and 
sat back and thought, what are we going to do? And you're like, you know, we really have this, we're not marketing people like founders. Like that's not our expertise. We should not try to go head to head with Geico's and lemonades. Like they're better at that than us. Man, we were were talking about this last night. Yeah. Geico, like you can't compete with Geico. Like they have the lowest cost of capital in the entire world. Yeah. Like you just can't compete. Yeah. And they have a great, you know, brand for what they do. Everyone recognizes it. And, you know, like the usually insurance AdWords are some of the most expensive there is. And so ultimately it was like, okay, but what do we really, we're, we're really good technologists. And we understand this reinsurance world much better than anyone. Most people don't even know what reinsurance is and all the weird words that, that we use in this industry. So let's, let's dive into that and, and not work on, you know, the, the kind of sexy consumer product. And I'm very happy we did that. But we did incorporate the company on February 28th, 2020, roughly three days before the Sequoia letter went out and two weeks before lockdowns. So um, <laughs> that as I was a good story. The Sequoia memo goes out. I have a complete panic. I call up Andrew. I'm like, we're never going to raise money. Um, and we're going to have to keep self-financing for another year. And I'm running out of cash and and andrew's like man you have no idea this is the best thing that could ever happen we you know reinsurers thrive in down markets this is this is the moment and the down market didn't actually happen to you then not not in not not yeah not in this industry but it did in some ways in that again actually pandemic cost reinsurers a ton of money right which then causes them to be even more gun shy pull back supply and which is why we've seen a 5x rate increase in reinsurance in California. And again, it's that it is more dangerous than it used to be, but it's not 5x more dangerous, right? SoFi, right, got created because, you know, after 2008, everyone was like, I don't want to give loans. And SoFi was like, actually giving loans, student loans to Harvard and MIT grads is like a really good business. And, and, and I can stand for it. Yeah. I can do that, right? It's a, like It's a cherry picking business. Yeah, it, it, yeah. You guys are all mispricing the risk of loaning to GSB grads. It, like that. Exactly. And and so it is that for us, as we get into it, we always kind of have this conversation. In many ways, we operate like a quant hedge fund. We look at Rentech and say, this is kind of how we, like, I don't think Kettle has to be bigger than maybe a couple hundred really brilliant people. But at the same time, we also sell a product. So it's not like you can just click numbers and like you have to build a product and you have to sell it to a customer. So it's a little nuanced there, but that product is a quantitative understanding of risk. You're like, okay, great. We've got this idea. Like, we got this thesis. Now's the right time. All these, re- you know, we got the why now, got the market opportunity, blah, blah, blah. How do you build a reinsurance company? And what are the steps that you guys have, like, like your journey over the past couple of years is like crazy? Okay. So, first, we had to build a model that we thought would do a better job than the existing model. And that was under the first thesis of just like, I think machine learning is at a point where it can do a better job than actuarial modeling. So let's, we spent six months building, you know, ETL pipelines to ingest all the satellite imagery and weather data and clean it up and put it into the process and in, in, in the formats we want. And then we started training our models on it. And we started comparing that to the, to the norms. And then we're like, okay, I think we have something here. I think we can do a better job and write better price. And so that was kind of a first a first start. But then the thing that's interesting, right, you know, from a fundraising perspective is like models, they don't translate well into slides. Um, so right, we had to then hire some, some of our first, our like great engineers and front engineers who made some beautiful looking maps that was just like, here's how to understand quickly, you know, what, what we're seeing as a risk, which, you know, looks like a map of the state and like red and, you know, green, all that kind of good stuff. And so we, and that's also just really helpful from just 
pitching and sales. So we have we have that product in house. And then the next question is regulatory. We got set up in Bermuda. We went through the sandbox program there, which is like a, a kind of like a startup program that the government runs for for new insurance ideas and companies and to attract talent. Went through the regulatory process. I got good at writing documents. I think one of my superpowers. I, we didn't talk about my background, but I did spend a bit of time in in, in government, and I always feel like just the ability to keep banging my head against big bureaucratic walls is like what is like my my competitive advantage really until it's done. Yeah, you're actually like amazingly well suited to doing what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, we didn't talk about it, but like I, I, at one point, I I'm actually not. I would never be anywhere without the brilliance of our CTO, San, and and, our, and all the the understanding of the market and brilliance that Andrew, my other co-founders, bring. But like, um, I did at one point uh, spend most of my career working on two things. One was I ran an open source software company that made tools for crisis response and first responders called Ushahidi. And who was really interested in that data that we were that was being collected in these these aftermaths of crisis was you know insurance companies and then the second was i i worked in the office in the white house in 2012 2013 and then i was the the chief data officer of usaid for about a year which eh, was a a nice title for the reality of what i did which was run around the government giving presentations about how terrible pdfs are um, <laughs> and why you should open source and put your all your data into machine readable formats and put it on this thing data.gov that we just set up. So that was what I did. But again, who was really interested in that data? We were trying to make stories like, oh, well, it's you know, GPS weather data. We would go around and say, look at the amazing stuff that weather.com has created and you know, precision crop farming and and we have Google Maps now because the US government put satellites up into the air and put weather stations everywhere and made these into machine readable APIs. Let's do it for, you know, what's coming out of humanitarian crisis and things like that. And who was interested in that were insurance companies and reinsurance companies. And I was just like, this is so interesting. And I, I got just, you know, like completely obsessed. And then I also was like, this is this beautiful, elegant thing where we all sort of pool our money together and take care of each other when something really bad happens. And I think that's kind of beautiful. Like, it, and, and what an opportunity. This is an industry that literally you ask most people and the guy freaking hate insurance. They're the worst. And yet it's this wonderful thing that yeah. we're all doing, taking care of and each other. Be, can I push on something real quick? I think there's this interesting ideological philosophical point here. Theoretically, isn't it more a we all band together thing if the underwriting is kind of a brute force blunt instrument versus being incredibly finely tuned to every participant in the system. You could sort of view it more as a social safety net if everybody is paying into this fire insurance thing, whether or not my property is the most prone to burn down. I understand where you're going, but I also think that's equivalent to like a flat income tax versus a progressive income tax, right? Like actually the most fair is like the people with the most risk should pay more than the people with the least risk. Yeah, right. Well, you also kind of want some market incentives, you know, not to like build property in paradise. 100%. Right? Like, That's the other thing I love about insurance is it's all incentives. Like over time, if we're earning enough money, we can be like, you know, you harden your home, you will give you a 10% off on your premium, right? You can have these all the incentive structures like to, to incentivize good behavior. Again, I don't think I'm representing that view, but I think that's this interesting sort of thing where the finer grain the underwriting of course the more expensive it is for people with higher risk situations so there's 
it's a little bit of a, a tension and you just decide where on the spectrum you want to sit of like, hey, there's no insurance at all. And therefore, everybody just kind of self-insures or we go all the way and we have you know, you know the equivalent of what you mentioned as a flat income tax, which also doesn't seem like the right solution. And so yours is sort of about getting a higher resolution picture of a place in the middle that you're picking. That's exactly right. Yeah. And that that is why there's this kind of trusted, hopefully trusted third party to be the underwriter and decision maker around the pricing of that risk. And that's that is the role of insurance to do that and then and hold a bit of that and of that risk and and organize it correctly. Uh, you know, the other thing though is everyone self-insures. It's really uh, this is the other kind of wonderful thing about insurance. If everyone else self-insures, it's really bad for the economy because what happens is, you know, in theory, a, a rational actor locks up a lot of capital would would keep the entire value of their home in cash in a bank account in case it burns down. Which means that a lot of money then sits and doesn't move around the the economy, right? And and doesn't get spent, and and so you free up doesn't get invested, doesn't get invested, and so insurance actually creates this great liquidity into the into the market. Okay, so <laughs> speaking of keeping money aside, you know, to cover losses, the core competence, operating competency of a reinsurer, as we've been talking about, is your models, right? But the other actual side of the equation is capital. That's right? exactly like, right. Yeah. I was so how do that. you start a reinsurance <laughs> company when you're talking about, you know, insuring hundreds of millions, billions of dollars of uh, assets? <laughs> yeah, exactly right. So, so yeah, we said build the model, get the regulatory structure. And then the next thing is like, okay, great. We raised, uh, you know, 30 million or so from a, a seed and A in, in a hot market. Now I can insure four houses in California. Um, <laughs> maybe. So maybe. maybe. Um, well, how does that work? And so what you need to do is our role is really as this, this transfer of risk to capital. Actually, I'll take this out of, it's partly out of your playbook. It's partly out of uh, my partner, Andrews, but we, we often talk to the team about it being like standard oil. We need to be the refiner of risk in the middle to the end user who wants the risk. And then from the crude oil, that is kind of the original. And what do we mean by that? And if you do that, then you really create a true value. So we're kind of this marketplace in the middle where we we are our main function at this moment without our own giant balance sheet is to understand and transfer risk to capital. What does that look like? So there's two places where capital comes from to write reinsurance. Uh, so if you write reinsurance, what you're saying is, hey, you pay me $10 million. And if these things happen, I will pay you out $100 million. The regulators go, you can't do that unless you have $100 million in the bank or you know have a rated balance sheet in your you know, Berkshire Hathaway and we'll let you have a certain amount. Right? You have to keep a certain amount of it in the bank and then we'll We'll trust you for the rest. So it comes from two places. One is reinsurers who are essentially big balance sheets who are usually just valued on a very small multiple to the to the amount of capital they have sitting in the bank. So these are other reinsurers, other reinsurers that have come to you and realized, like, shoot, actually, we're not doing this right now. We can work with you, and like, how about you manage this that's portion ex- of the? That's risk exactly for us? right. Yeah, and so. What are you like a re reinsurer then? Uh, that's called a retrocessional, but that's not what we are yet. Um, so in this case, what we are is technically is a reinsurance MGA. An MGA is uh, stands for managing general agent, and it's essentially a broker with underwriting authority. And so what a reinsurer is in this case is really an LP. 
It's kind of like being a, a fund that decides to put into a smaller fund like kindergarten, right? And yep. for whatever reason. And what they're doing is they're saying, hey, yeah, we could go write this, but all we have access to is that that model, right? That we know doesn't work anymore. I'm looking at the rates and the rates of 5X in the last five years, but I can't go to my my risk board and say, hey, we want to get back into California risk and we're going to use that same model that lost us $50 billion in 2017 and 18 because, and by the way, right, those are SaaS businesses. So you lose $50 billion and then the biz, the, the modeling company goes, cool, you know, here's my bill for yeah, my licenses. Right, right, yeah. Here's my charge for this <laughs> year. my for, charge. I just lost you all this money, right? <laughs> um, and so I, I think the incentives were really wrong by outsourcing this modeling capability. And so what we do is operate much more like kind of like a hedge fund structure in this case, you know, the, the reinsurers are the LPs and they're saying, hey, I want to get back into the industry or back into the market. I need a new view of risk and I'm going to do it with Kettle. And not only are they just going to charge me a flat fee, they're going to basically say, hey, our license SaaS fee, we basically say, we're going to take a percent of the return. And so if we don't give you a return, we don't really get paid. And if we do well, we're going to get a lot of carry. That's how it works. Ooh, okay. So, Nat, I've known you've been up to this for a while, but I haven't really understood it. So, in some ways, this is good for listeners because I'm getting to hear it fresh and I'm sort of a proxy for the questions people might have. So, you said two interesting things there. One is that reinsurance companies are valued basically as the cash on their balance sheet. So, that, that means that people are giving basically no value to the ongoing operations of the business of doing that underwriting and selling the reinsurance to the insurance companies. And so then the question becomes, if I could be an LP in this pool of capital that you're sort of creating, or I could be a good old venture capitalist and invest in the operating company of Kettle, how is it that Kettle is going to accrue enterprise value when typically reinsurers are basically just valued as the cash on hand. Well, Ben, you've gotten right to the heart of the the theory. <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, we're trying to walk a clear line and be a you know one of the first clear technology driven reinsurers. So we're going to get really into it. So MGAs, all the kind of insure techs and folks that you've heard of in the space, a lot of them are structured as MGAs, usually not as a reinsurance MGA, but as a primary. And the reason why the markets like that is it is a kind of a market transaction based business. You're not holding most of the risk. You know, all, a lot of the insure techs in space, they, they build the, the customer base and this, and then they transfer the risk onto reinsurers who pay out a lot of the claims and they get a larger valuation multiple because of that. Generally, people don't like risk is not valued well in the markets, right? I mean, look at Berkshire, right? As a as classic example, the better underwriting you've done over time as a reinsurer, the, the mo- higher the multiple is on your balance sheet. So there are some that are at 6x and higher, but they've built really excellent underwriting businesses. To the extent folks are familiar with InsurTech, you know, as the, the InsurTech corner of the fintech world, which has been very active yeah. in aggregate over the last decade. Yeah. You know, the Lemonades, the Hippos, the Metro Miles, yeah. the most of those are MGAs, this model that we're a lot of them, yeah. 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 Or they structure as carriers and have as well and then but still transfer most of the risk off to the 
to the reinsurers. Okay, so what's the thesis with so, Kettle then? <laughs> so I'm going to tie in two things actually here. One was David asking, where does the capital come from? And then Ben, your question. So we're taking this approach that also I've seen as someone who invests a lot in insure tech that I think a lot of everyone's moving towards, which is this, this sort of hybrid model where you own a little bit of the risk, not a lot, but some to show alignment of interest. And then you also have the MGA structure. And the reason... So what does this look So we set up Kettle Re, which is a, a reinsurance balance sheet for actually writing risk. And we then go raise capital from, this is the second place that capital comes from for reinsurance. The first is traditional reinsurers. The second is through something called insurance link securities, which is essentially the securitization of insurance premium. And the typical investors in that are pension plans, sovereigns, endowments, large family offices, asset managers. And the reason why they like it is it is a completely uncorrelated asset from the traditional market. And that can, you know, back in the day was doing kind of 10, 11% solid returns. Now over that, I said, there's been a 62% drop in that. But that ILS market actually only really started in 2005 or six. It is now about a hundred billion a year. So this has been the past six months of your life, right? Like you have set this up now for kettle and raised like a significant chunk of money from people who uh well i'll let you tell it but yeah i like oh yeah you know gosh as the market changes yeah. i really might like a sort of <laughs> 10 to 20 percent annual return completely uncorrelated with jerome powell yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, uh asset here exactly so we i kicked off the plan and, and this is actually responding to the market needs. So wh- why we do this originally, it, you know, if we did it fully and just set up uh, our own full balance sheet, then yeah, we would probably start getting valued at, at just the value of the balance sheet, right? Which is not, is not as attractive as the advantage of the technology that we have. But what was interesting from the MGA process is where we're working with reinsurers. The analogy I've often used in this case is it's kind of like in, as an MGA and reinsurance MGA, you're kind of like someone running a fund that just uses SPVs. You don't have dedicated capital. You have a great cadre of folks who really believe in you, but they're like, I want to look at everything deal by deal. I'm not just going to let you call capital. And there's a ton and you bring them a deal and, and, and then they decide. But the thing with that is it's slower. It takes more time. And also when you're pitching the, the deal, right? Like the, like you're like, hey, I could lead you around as long as I can get the capital together, right? And and like right, the, the right, founder right. in that case is like, well, I'd rather just take the term sheet from you know the people that can guarantee that the money's there, right. and probably from the investor too. I mean, I'm thinking like one of the reasons we have a fund, we, we do SPVs too, we love it. But you know, like if we just did SPVs, like a lot of people would say like, okay, cool, like I'm glad you showed me this. I'm willing to mm-hmm. give you something for you showing me this, but right. like I'm putting the money in. Why am I going to give you two and twenty? You know, yeah, <laughs> like totally. And then the other thing about reinsurance is, you know, re- the reinsurance—it's it, so much like the venture industry. It's the term of like we're all frenemies. Bermuda is basically like old school Silicon Valley, like Sand Hill Road. And the reason why is when you do a deal, there's usually a lot of different folks in the deal. You could do a hundred million dollars of risk and one reinsurer does 50 and somebody else does 20 and somebody else does 30, right? And you, you're kind of competing for it, but you also all aggregate to share the risk across. And so what the, the thought is here is if we have our own, by setting up our own balance sheet, setting up Kettle Re, our intention is that we then can actually lead our own deals and it lets us move that much faster. And the reinsurers were sort of said that they're like, Hey, if you could just, you know, 
instead of a bringing us this deal and asking us, do you want to lead this and put in, you know, video, if you let it and said, hey, we're already written this, we're doing it, we're going to keep 20% of it, we're bringing in the other 80, out, syndicating yeah. out the other 80%, they're like, it's so much easier for us to just say yes to that than you bringing us something from charge. So it was all about trying to actually increase velocity is the reason to raise this this fund, the structure, ILS structure. And so, yes, as we, we have gotten some commitment for that this year, which we're super excited about and gives us the the ability to do that for this this fire season. And the hope is to really you know, increase that tremendously. You know, and our partners took a bet on us, right? We got about 50 million committed. It's early days. We're a couple year old company. Again, that's a lot of money to put behind someone's, you know, models uh, in the early day. Like we were, had a, f- a few things written last year, but it was pretty small. Uh, so now we really get to test it for real this year. And then what's been fun is, you know, I pitched a ton of folks and I you think, know, like, Kind of a, went, yeah, did, you started did, raising did the this road in show. like January, yeah. right? Yeah, and in <laughs> it January, was a very different environment. Exactly. In January, it was like, this is really interesting. This is cool. You know, it's early. But, I could you know, also just put my money in tech and there's zero interest rates. And like, I, mean, I just doubled my money this past year. And exactly. Like, you know. And, you know, and the amount of folks who've kind of called back in the last last couple months and said, hey, remember when you were telling me about that like mid-teen return uncorrelated asset? Like, can we get back on the phone? Well, how's that working? And so we'll be, you know, we're re-engaging a bunch of them looking at the 2023 year. The other thing about reinsurance that's very different than being in a hedge fund kind of approach is like, yeah, Hedron, you can buy and sell every day. Insurance is sold on like a, a structure, right? And so like you, most of it is sold on a calendar year on one one and you kind of line up capital and do that. And then there's one another big January 1st, January 1st. Yeah. Yeah. And then usually basically the beginning of each quarter, there's another big sale. So you kind of work on these quarter long sales processes which is just an interesting function. We're thrilled. It's exciting. I think what's really interesting about that too is like right now is being in an industry that actually is truly kind of counter-cyclical to the equity market and can we have a really attractive product for for investors in this in this moment. All right, so I got to ask what's hard what sucks about this business? What are your smartest skeptics sort of think? For the smartest person that you pitch where you're like, damn, that pitch didn't go well and they had a lot of good points. What are some of those good points that you're constantly like fighting against? Oh, good question. Because so far it's just sounded like all rainbows and sunshine. <laughs> good question. The hardest thing about this industry is that you can't do reinsurance at a small level. Like it is really hard to pilot. Look like YC, go get five customers. Like you can't <laughs> like... You're like, there are five customers total. Yeah. The smallest deal that we talk about is like $10 million on risk. Like that's the starting point. You have to get enough confidence and build enough to convince someone to put $10 million worth of risk down with you as a starting point, right? Like that's... Well, you, Nat and I joke about that. So like, I'm sure you say this to other people, other your friends too, but you're like, I'm doing some real entrepreneuring right now. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's right. That's <laughs> exactly right. It is. And that's, and that's hard as a startup, right? Like, and I get that. The capital allocators are like, hey, you don't have a lot of years of proof here. And at the same time, it, it, everything sounds good and it sounds smart, but like, that's the magic... Actually, I'll give a, a shout out to to our friends at Vouch. You know, Sam has been a a really wonderful the co founder and CEO of Vouch. 
really wonderful mentor and, and helpful to me and to Kettle. You know, I remember him telling me once, like, you know, getting a, an insure tech or I think any kind of startup off the ground, it's like, it's like it's this crazy stretch. You're kind of like doing a split, trying to pull one side in and the other side, and you're trying to convince them and you just got to somehow pull it all together and make it happen. That's the hardcore entrepreneuring. <laughs> like at, just get the belief there. Once you have that, you can really start to scale. I mean, another cool thing about reinsurance, I think it's very easy to scale quickly um, without having to buy a bunch of ads or things like that. If it's working, you kind of just add some zeros to everything. And the best questions that I'm always like, ooh, good thought here, are actually usually, it's, it's pretty nuanced, but they're, they're around what's called reinsurance product design, which is, gets really nuanced. And it's something we had to learn. It was like one of the things we actually learned. So the first product we put out was this thing we called a cat slice. It was what we kind of talked about. Like, oh, you can you send us your book. We'll evaluate it. We'll look for the mispriced risk. We'll put those into their own little pool and we'll ensure that and that will allow you to then, you know, slice out those fire risks out of your portfolio and have them covered. And we thought that was brilliant. You know, like, okay, that's gonna be great. Everyone's gonna love that, right? Like, I, I got these like risky things that you uh, that people think are risky off my books, and somebody else is covering it. You know, the nuance there is it's that we're the ones going in and picking it and slicing it, and the buyer doesn't love that idea as much, right? They're like, I want to be the ones to pick what I want to cover. And so we, you know, I want to give you a portfolio and you price it. Exactly. And so what we do now, now we still use this, this great model that we wrote called our dynamic pricing model that again was actually taken from the hedge fund world or built by our team from the hedge fund world. And it's it used pricing then to incentivize it. So we look at each of the grids, let's say in Sonoma, and the customer says, I want to buy to cover this grid. It's actually the product's called grid rated industry loss or grill. And it's a parametric type product at the reinsurance level. Parametric means that if this grid burns, usually about square kilometer level, we pay out an agreed upon amount versus having to deal with the time of claims and specifics and rolling up. And we have kind of an agreed upon structure and amount there. And then the way it works is we say, okay, you pick this grid, we're going to charge, you know, I'm just picking these numbers, but 10 out of 100. And if you pick the grid next to it, that second grid alone might be 10 out of 100. But if you pick both, that second one's going to be 15. And if you pick a third one next to it, that also might only have a one in 10 chance. But if you pick all three, that one's going to be 25, right? Because we're trying to show that like by if you're going to try to just cover the entire county, it's probably going to be a fire somewhere, you know, we need to cover that and pay for it accordingly. So it, it, it creates this way to disincentivize the geographical clumping of risk where one fire could cause tons of loss um, as we talked about earlier yeah the whole thing is kind of getting live priced through our api through that and the point of that though to your question the difficult part is kind of like the questions you know we were getting around that original product or that really drive into hey the other stuff about how just the industry is typically buying at a at a state all peril all state level which is really convenient as a buyer the what's happened is it's gone 5x so it's become painful right and now we're at a point where we're like hey we can save you money it's going to cost you more like it's going to cost more time you're going to have to buy from multiple people it's going to be a little bit more work but if you do it you should save a bunch of money and it's kind of just convincing the buyer more and more that like you should do that you should save yourself money the prices are are painful now this is a way to do it that's at the consumer level pitch but it's also communicating why the consumer wants to buy our product the, uh, to the to consumer. The that's as well. at the insurance 
primary insurance level. Right? That's right. Like, yeah, that, yeah, that's yeah. the pitch to Allstate, to State Farm. That's to, correct. Yeah, you know, et cetera. Yeah, but also convincing the the investors how that works when they're really nuanced and understand. I mean, then the other thing is honestly explaining machine learning. You know, to to folks who do, is is always a is always a, a challenge and to really get them to the point where like, I really believe this and I like it because it, it's by its very nature, a little bit of a black box. Um, right. And, and that's, and that gets scary for folks. Nat, you sort of casually mentioned earlier, you know, you do a lot of investing in insure tech and, you know, you see this model that you're pursuing is the future. You're seeing lots of companies go this way. The investing you mean is the investing that we do at kindergarten. That's right. <laughs> and that is why you're my partner in kindergarten because man, you see like all of these like awesome early super early stage insurtechs doing super innovative stuff you're right in the middle of all of it like <laughs> yeah maybe let's talk about kindergarten a little bit it's also like such a cool acquired story yeah, i don't think we've discussed that at all on the show i mean at one point we did like a how a startup studio works to dive into psl but i've never like turned the tables and been like so what what are you doing at kindergarten so <laughs> let me play interviewer here all right let's instead of going all the way back to kindergarten Maybe we'll, we'll get there, but let's start with like, when did you two decide to partner and how did you decide to do investing the way you're doing investing? Well, I think we got to start with how we reconnect because we I went think, to kindergarten yeah. together, but then there's like a 25 year gap. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. This makes it sound like you're like these incredible old friends who have been set friends. We since, like we no, are. Like, you did go to kindergarten together. We, and, but... and not just like when to kindergarten. We, we like spent a lot of like our parents have been friends this whole time. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> like we spent a lot of time together. That's right. I mean, maybe we do have to start at the beginning. Dave and I went to kindergarten together, but then David went to a different school. But was like also but very close. I mean, we live like 10 minutes from each other, you know, and, and then our parents were friends. And so we'd still hang out and stuff as kids when, you know, your parents are setting up play dates and things like that. But then as we got older, we went to different schools and, you know, we'd like actually I played each other in sports. So we'd see each other here or there and things like that. But like we had different social circles once you're in kind of middle and high school and things like that. Right. And it's also I, so funny having kids now. Like I totally understand our own journey much <laughs> yeah, better. I'm like, yeah. yeah, oh, I totally get what happened here. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Famously, Dave and I have memories of paying a lot of Atari together, which maybe dates us. And then the story actually you know, brings both of you in. I was building Kettle, the earlier thinking about even building Kettle like, and starting to work on it. And, you know, as one does in the startup world, I did live in the Bay and kind of live in the startup world for, for 10 years. And, and now I was like, I'm going to go do now it's my time. I'm going to go, I'm going to start my thing. I'm ready for it. Like, here are the reasons. And that's how we started getting kettled together. And I started listening to acquired. There was a point where I was listening to it and I go, David Rosenthal, David Rosenthal. And I'm remembering my mom being like, you know, David works at in tech too, not in like venture. And I'm like, Mom, I have my own parents. Don't I don't need you know, <laughs> stuff. <like. laughs> of course, my parents are saying the same thing. Yeah, like, I was like, hey, I have not. That's awkward. I haven't seen him for twenty years. I'm not going to just drop him a line. Like I don't, you know, um, he's up in Seattle anyway. <laughs> but I'm listening to Acquired and and David Rundall. I go in, I Google. It's 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 audio. So I was like, is that? And I look at him like that is. That's David, twenty years older, um, <laughs> and so I got onto your Slack, signed up for the LP show, and uh, messaged and, and uh, messaged yeah, David. Sessions David and was like, "Hey man, I love the show. This is awesome." Um, oh, that's and we amazing. went for a hike in the East Bay, and I was like, "You seem to know someone. Just happened to be starting thinking about starting a company. Uh, what do you think of this?" That probably was like I was saying earlier. You know, I started it in Feb. 
uh, right before lockdowns. It was, it was probably right time, like three really. months before then. Yeah. Like it was right before kind of lockdowns. And David, you angel invested before kindergarten existed, right? Like That's you right. angel yeah. invested so, in well, Kettle. I mean, this was fortuitous. This was my uh, my period as an actual angel investor. Yeah. Talk about being an angel investor now. Yeah. And, but I mean, I... I, I think myself as an unprofessional venture capitalist <laughs> yes, now, that's, but that's not a I good like, like acquired <laughs> intro. Maybe I should use that on the acquired <laughs> intro. Like I'm David Rosenthal. I'm an unprofessional venture capitalist. <laughs> maybe non-professional. Yeah, maybe non-professional. I like post-professional. It. Post-pro- <laughs> there we go. Post-professional. Yeah, this was during my post-professional venture phase when we were starting to scale up acquired, and I was angel investing. I was like, this is this is pretty interesting. You hadn't actually like despite being in tech you hadn't raised like this kind of built this kind of company raised the kind of money from the kind of firms you were talking about. no and no so, like, i hadn't it was so fun to reconnect and i was just like i think i can help you navigate this and uh and nat who have you raised from we didn't talk about this but like dollar amount firms what, what's the stage of the company right now actually so let me let me finish this part and i'll answer that as part of it so we got ready over that spring to raise and in part of that, I was like, hey, David, you know, you, you said you wanted an angel invest. I was like, great. I was like, would you also be willing to like, you know, do some dry runs with us? Like, let us pitch you in, with your venture hat on and tear us apart. And he got a nice smile and we did the pitch. And uh, oh, it's like, great, right? And then, and then he ripped me apart. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was so, I felt so bad, especially because like I knew you at this point, Andrew, your co-founder. I was like, oh man, you know, like I think of myself as pretty nice, and like I love you guys. It was so it, like, it was the such pitch a switch. Was terrible. The nice David just like suddenly was like, just oh, let me this, let yeah. me take it. We were like, and I remember Andrew afterwards was like, I was that was so surprising. <laughs> <laughs> like it and it's helpful. Like it is value creative, but you're right, you're like, whoa, this is a very is, different yeah, David. It, it, I exactly. Think, I think most exactly. listeners don't know this about me, but like, yeah, when I deem that it will be helpful. I'm capable of switching to just being like completely brutal. <laughs> like, <laughs> I uh, a mutual friend uh, described David in the venture world as a uh, as an evil genius. I'll just <laughs> leave it at that. So we actually did that with you. I mean, and I'll recommend it any kind of founders out there. Like, highly recommend doing this. We did this with David twice. We did it with two other entrepreneurs and friends, and another VC who had a very focused fund. So I obviously weren't going to be in this. And so, which was great because I'd be like, great, just now let's go through it. And we did a bunch of reps and got much better and then went out to pitch. And our seed round was in the summer of uh, 2020. And it went... It was uh, insane. How many term sheets did you have? We had 15 written term sheets. Um, <laughs> Which like... <laughs> most for, most for, even back then, you know, most firms... That is the actual gonna, most I've ever yeah, heard. Most nuts. firms aren't going to actually write a term sheet if they know that there's that level of competition. They're just going to be like, all right, uh, you know. Uh, but like, you got actually 15 term I sheets. I went and counted. I think it was... It was, yeah, 12 or 15 actual written term sheets. Another like... 10 that basically were like exactly what you just said like i'm not gonna bother like you come know, back if this falls back, through you know, or whatever yeah. yeah like okay you've gotten 15 like we're out you know this isn't gonna this isn't gonna fly it was nuts and david was also one of the best advisors through this process where i was like i really like these guys but they won't increase their amount and david just being like uh tell them to increase their amount or and just don't say anything else and they will just be quiet and and it will work out. Um, <laughs> sorry, investors. David, you getting the full backstory here. No, um, this is great. We're this all great. friends. Uh, no. This is why um, I love being the a other non-professional wild thing DC. Was we ended up raising. It's like the Don Valentine thing. One of the famous Don Valentine tactics was always he would just 
in approaching a conversation that he knew would be sort of difficult and he knew he would have to sort of get someone to do something they didn't want to do. But he also knew that maybe they were thinking they would have to do it. He would just sit down and go, so. (laughs) (laughs) And just stay quiet awkwardly for a long time. That that was that's pretty word for word what David would would advise us, and I'd be like, oh, I don't know, and it's, are they gonna back out? And it's like, that nah, it's gonna be okay. The other funny part about us, we ended up raising at an at an eighteen million valuation, which like at the time was bonkers, and now I look How back and was like, what? Um, we raised uh, 4.7, we raised four point five ish, yeah. So we did raise well, larger than a normal amount, but it ended up working. Really great because one again you know again david getting a lot of credit here was you know thinking about the structure and so again kind of talking to any founders out there we thought really closely and we ended up bringing in two amazing seed kind of focused funds and then two more a kind of focused funds at smaller amounts and managed to squeeze squeeze them all in they were so true led the seed homebrew uh, a crew and Anthemis world kind of took part. Anthemis is a fund that's very focused on insurtech and fintech and really really knows the space really well. So that was great. A crew we had a great you know just really got along really well with, and I knew Lauren there for many years, and so there's a good trust. And then uh, we should and have then, Lauren on the on the LP show. She's, yeah, she's yeah, great. She's great. Um, and then she another give her shout side out to the story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Two other shout outs. So we ended up going with True to lead, and and uh, you know you you guys have gotten to know True a bit. I mean, they, I really think they are just the best seed investors they, out they there. Are, in my mind, I mean, you know, he's sort of biased, but like just pure play seed, like they've been doing it the longest. Like they're... They love kind of crazy PSL stuff. PSL exempted, of course. Yeah. Non, Non-Pacific <laughs> Northwest. Yeah. Bay Area pure <laughs> seed. Like they, they're, they're fantastic. They haven't. They've been doing it a lot longer than we have. For oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah, like they've been doing it for like, now like or seed focused like, for like 20 plus yeah, years. Like, yeah. They're such a great crew of other founders and they love kind of the crazy weird stuff. You know, Adam there was, you know, we, we pitched and talked to him and then we did a second pitch like a week later. He'd asked like what were kind of, you know, what are some books about reinsurance and things? And three days later, when we did the kind of the next conversation, he'd read all books and had just like, we were like, man, you know, and one of the things we realized, we were like, we want to go with the folks who just like are our kind of crazy and obsessive and obsessed uh with with the with this thing and then the last was um was home by the way Tr- yeah. true ventures is an investor in psl in the studio itself oh, that's right that's awesome. right i forgot about that that's oh, great. yeah i mean yeah, like so it, we're connected all over the place obviously the kevin rose episode where we had him on and talked nfts and everything but like a huge thumbs up to everything you were saying about a like ridiculously earnest ethos and that's their public posture and that is exactly how they are for real too for 100 percent. Oh, yeah. we were just talking about a kettle issue before this and like there was a situation where true could have like been very antagonistic and like they were just so like supportive of like, oh, like, just, like it genuinely supportive. is like it's yeah. so rare like most species are not that way they, they yeah. yeah anyway and then our our last partner here was uh was the homebrew team and satya there who i think have just a really great understanding of the fintech space and the insurer tech space and really had a product background i mean satya had run run product to twitter and before and, and was I and, and did a bunch of Google and so we wanted that sort of background as well and so bring that crew together and then we hit a bunch of milestones really fast in kind of six to nine months and in the beginning of 2021 they our existing investors decided to preempt our A and came in and gave us a preemptive term sheet and we negotiated and it was ended up being 
really great terms. Um, we ended up raising about 25 million in our A at the beginning of 21. And we loved this crew behind us. So a uh, crew ended up leading that. Uh, and then we also brought in some other awesome investors, lower carbon capital in the climate space, uh, Valor, who are really smart folks. Um, and are now our largest LPs in kindergarten. True story. Yeah. <laughs> Love um, Valor folks are so great. Yeah, they're really great. And DCVC, who had kind of the tech, the, the data focus. So uh, the, the three of them came in as well. Okay, so things are going well over in Kettle Land. David, you're an angel investor at this point in Kettle. And so you and Nat are getting to know each other through that a little bit. How does the idea come up of like, hey, we should start a fund together? It was yeah. Nat's idea. <laughs> yeah, so one other part was that the first two checks in the kettle prior to raising that round were from two well it was three i mean david as well i guess but the other two i had a a safe opened up and there were two friends who were our entrepreneurs who now actually kindergarten has invested in both i'll name check them ryan delco who started primer roger chen who started cosign they had done i mean countless pitches with me over bad ideas you know ryan and i rented out a breather one night and just like whiteboarded for hours about how to make a crypto insurance company back in 2017 so we had them put in and they both had they were kind of entrepreneurs with two small funds right yeah, and they I, their own angel list you know and- same exact structure and and i went and asked i was like hey guys how much work is it and what's it like and they're like it's all add value i get to just meet all these underwater wonderful entrepreneurs all the time it's great you talk to them anyway and I'd love to angel invest in all of them, but I don't have enough capital, right? So this gives me the chance to to do that and be supportive and build the net. And I went and asked David his thought on on this as well. I was like, I'm kind of thinking about doing this, you know. That I think I think I could raise a little bit of capital. I actually know some reinsurance execs who are often like, Nat, if you see a great deal over in Silicon Valley land, let me know. And I was playing this sort of bridge, but I wasn't sure. I was like, you know, I I've got to be really focused on kettle. And David was like, you know, I've been thinking about the same thing wouldn't it be a lot more fun to do it together? I was like, absolutely. (laughs) So everything's better. If you have someone you trust and you can work together on something instead of being a solo, it's just so much more fun. And there's a built-in gut check. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and the, and the other big thing we've talked about this on, on acquired a lot, but I was hearing from people I knew who were doing similar stuff like this, you, you know, your friends who had put into Kettle and, you know, who now we're invested in. We were coming to realize, and then when we talked to a bunch of them when we were thinking about this, AngelList just makes this possible. So like, easy. It's, it's not only about getting the capital from LPs to do this. It's just like, I was even finding as a personal angel investor, just the infrastructure. Like, even though it was all my own money and like, I was like, fine, I'm not going to do legal diligence or anything, but like, it's just a, it's hard, you know, yeah. when you're also trying to build something else. And yeah. AngelList made it, we realized we could do this and have AngelList do literally all the infrastructure, all of the time-consuming stuff. What makes your beer taste better in investing is finding, getting access to deals, getting allocation, and and being able to like help those entrepreneurs. We yeah. we felt like we could we love doing that. Yeah. You know, I'd been running funds like, you know, oh my gosh, the amount of infrastructure, you know, Ben, you know, running your own fund. Like it's just it's a lot. And and so and it wasn't even economic to have a you know our first fund was two point eight million our second fund now is twelve million plus even at that level like it wouldn't be economic to start a fund no but Angelus just made it possible like it's just like oh I'm it was, so grateful it was it, exactly it just seemed like it 
it made a lot of sense and it was stuff that we were doing anyway. I always, you know, an entrepreneur wants to talk about how do we do that with Kettle. I'm always like, yeah, of course, let's get on the phone. Now I get to go, great, let's get on the phone. And I like your pitch. Could we put in a little? Um, right. And that's great. So And then the cool thing too, I mean, A, the real reason we do this together has been exactly what you said. Like everything's more fun with a partner. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> especially a good friend. Less than 12, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. From the playbook. But uh Wow, dude, you know the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> we're good friends. <laughs> the uh you know, the other thing too is like we're just like I feel like we have such good synergy on our deal flow. Like mm. the deals that you do, I would never see or know how to evaluate, mm. you know? And then, you know, I I don't know that I would say the same for you. You would probably see the deals that, you know, like I do uh, with, with kindergarten, but you know, we get access, I wouldn't get access to <laughs> all sorts of great stuff. So. Oh, I think it's totally fair. I mean, look, you can give Nat all the praise in the world and he deserves it for being able to evaluate ideas similarly to your ability. But like your funnel, David, is insane. It's insane. That's insane. Like, well, I literally get amazing founders who DM me in Slack and say, we went to kindergarten together. <laughs> uh, we Can we reconnect and talk about this and like, and no, like get the, 15 the, term sheets? Yeah, so yeah. like, you know... <laughs> the, the quarter million top of funnel is an interesting thing. I'm sure it's a gift and a curse. Like the number of emails that... Yeah. David's being really nice, but yeah. I feel like the lucky one here, I gotta say. Um, I feel like so, it's uh, For sure. All right. I'm gonna have to cut you guys off because this is getting too too lovey-dovey. David and Nat, thank you both for sharing a bit of the journey there. I'm sure we'll we'll revisit more kindergarten stuff along the way. And Nat, just huge thank you for sharing what sounds like only the beginning of the uh, the Kettle journey and giving us all a little bit of a primer on... I don't think we've ever said the word reinsurance on the show before. <laughs> I appreciate that. I can geek out on this stuff all day long. So thanks for the good questions. Perfect. Well, if anyone wants to get in touch because they want to work with Kettle or at Kettle or invest in Kettle or anything like that, follow you on Twitter, send you an email. What's the what's the best thing to do? Yeah. If you want to check out Kettle, our website is our, O-U-R, Kettle.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Nat P. Manning. And you can also shoot me an email at Nat at, at our Kettle.com. Awesome. Thanks so much, Nat. Thanks. And listeners, we'll see you next time.